Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Carissa Nitchie. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you could join us. In the past week, there have been several developments in Europe-China relations. On July 19th, the European Union and China held the ninth EU-China High-Level Economic and Trade Dialogue. The dialogue focused on global economic challenges, disruptions of supply chains, and bilateral trade and investment concerns. Similarly, there were reports of invitations from Beijing to German, French, Italian, and Spanish leaders to meet with Xi Jinping in Beijing in November. And of course, all of this is happening against the backdrop of the war raging on between Russia and Ukraine and questions about Beijing's role in assisting Moscow. To make sense of all of these developments, we're pleased to welcome Noah Barkin and Francesca Garetti to the podcast. Noah Barkin is a managing editor with Rhodium Group's China Practice and a senior visiting fellow in the Asia program at the German Marshall Fund. Francesca Garetti is an analyst at Merrick's where she focuses on EU-China relations with an emphasis on economic security, China's global investments, and China's footprint in Southern Europe. Noah, Francesca, we're so glad that you both could join us today. Thanks for the invitation. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right. So let's jump right in. We're going to start really big and broad. Um, So a number of analysts have said that Europe-China relations are at an all-time low currently. I'm curious, do you share this perspective? How would you characterize Europe-China relations in this particular moment? Francesca, let's start with you. Um, thank you. It's a very interesting question. And uh, well, considering how well the relationship went before 2021, one would say, yeah, it could be at an all time low. But I think the all time low has sort of passed, at least for the moment. And again, I would look at 2021 as a much lower point compared to what is happening right now. What we're seeing right now in uh, Brussels, for example, is uh, Beijing reaching out to Brussels. Um, in different forms, formal and informal, and both the summit, the high-level economic dialogue, but also uh, visits from uh, Chinese think tanks prove that, you know, at the moment, the lowest point may be passed. The big question is we don't know really what these visits mean. We know that, you know, China is trying to re-engage but we don't know to what extent and whether they are willing to put something um, substantial on the table. And I don't want to jump ahead here, but looking at the high-level economic dialogue, what we see is mostly, you know, all issues being reproposed. And it still seems that China wants to bring back a relationship that no longer exists. And it wants to bring back themes that not necessarily, that are relatively old and without proposing anything ambitious and new. Um, But yeah, but maybe I'm jumping a little bit ahead here. No, that was excellent. Noah, do you have anything to add on just the broader contours of the relationship? Yeah, I mean, I agree with Francesca. Um, I I mean, I think uh, we are at a very low point in EU-China relations, despite uh, what we saw on July 19th with this high-level economic dialogue, which seems to have gone uh, uh, fairly smoothly. Um, I think the expectations are, are quite low at the moment. So it, it's easy to surprise uh, on the upside these days. But, uh, you know, uh, we had this exchange of sanctions in March 2021. 
Um, and, and since then, dialogue with, between the EU and China has been uh, very difficult, including on, on economic issues. Uh, I think Brussels and Beijing didn't speak uh, for about half a year uh, after, after those, those sanctions. Um, and, and then we had Lithuania, we had uh, the war in Ukraine, uh, and uh, we had, a, we had a, an EU-China summit back in April, uh, which uh, the EU's top diplomat, Joseph Burrell, described as a dialogue of the deaf. The EU side transmitted uh, a very strong message uh, to uh, Chinese leaders, including Xi Jinping, uh, on the importance of the war in Ukraine and, and China's stance on it for Europe. Uh, and, and this high-level economic dialogue, which, which uh, just took place, uh, hasn't taken place in two years. Uh, the investment agreement between the EU and China is still in the deep freeze with no prospect of coming out. Uh, there's a major debate raging in Europe about diversification, resilience, reducing dependencies on China. Uh, so we're seeing, I think, uh, the EU and China dipping their toes back into the water on economic issues. Uh, after a prolonged period where uh, dialogue was very limited and, and tensions were rising. Well, let's dive into this um, dialogue a little bit more. I mean, were there any really big takeaways from this that we should be keeping our eye on? Um, one thing that I think has come up several times in the readout was WTO reform. You know, I know that there, this comes up a lot also in Europe-US dialogues, particularly on China or on trade. You know, how should we be thinking about this dialogue and the greater arc of Europe-China relations? And are there any big takeaways that we should be looking, you know, in the next year or so that we might see materialize in some way? Should I jump in or? Go for it, Noah. Okay, okay. Um, well, I mean, the EU officials I've spoken to were pleasantly surprised by how this dialogue went. Uh, the atmosphere was cordial, even friendly. Um, uh, I don't think the Chinese side uh, was pushy or aggressive as they sometimes can be. Um, there were some deliverables, uh, small deliverables on, on issues like financial services. Uh, the EU and, uh, and, and China agreed to restart a dialogue on macro stability, which I think has been, hasn't, hasn't happened for a couple of years. Um, there were not any heated exchanges on, on the investment agreement and the sanctions from, from what I understand. Uh, but I think it's important to understand that this dialogue was led by uh, China's vice premier, uh, Liu He, uh, and he is seen as a relative moderate. He studied at Harvard and Seton Hall in the U.S., uh, and he also has a bit of a relationship with the EU Trade Commissioner, Valdis Dombrovskis. They've uh, had talks in the past. They've met before. So this was seen as a positive meeting, uh, but I don't think one could read too much into it. Lucha may not be around after the party Congress, uh, and one meeting like this for me does not begin to solve all the problems in the China in the EU-China relationship. Francesca, anything else to add on this? Um, yeah, I think that, again, one of the striking differences is the readout from the European Union and China. The press release from the European Union was much more detailed and it included a lot of um, 
unilateral proposals/remarks from the European Union that well was advancing requests to China but then if you go and read the readout from the Chinese side is not more general um it does not mention many of things that the European Union um claims to have focused on such as you know the the impact of the Russian invasion on Ukraine um the Russian invasion of Ukraine um on the global economy they mention you know macro issues of the global economy but not necessarily in relation to the invasion um and at the same time again i agree with no i was very friendly very positive the entire the, the environment was rather um uplifting um i i think is understandable at this stage also looking at how china's economy is performing how important it is for china to keep good relationship with um an actor and a market such as the european union um but at the same time i agree with no is not is not really a sign of how the relationship is going to develop in the future and if we do see some signs um is that um nothing particularly substantial has happened in this economic dialogue um so much so that there are some you know rumors and these are all just rumors that you know they might want they might they might be pushing for the um sort of unofficial implementation of the comprehensive agreement on investment so not waiting for the european union to ratify it but just you know take the single bits and try to start uh the the process to improve the relationship which is sort of weird if you put it in in the framework where as noah has rightfully mentioned um the european union is considering how to you know become less dependent from china not more well thank you all for that and i really appreciate getting it back up to speed on things eu china and what i'd like to do right now is take us to a, a strategic level uh to get your view on how europe looks to uh a planner in beijing a strategist in beijing uh who is looking at two big uh aspects of europe one is they're looking at a russia putin who is uh under a lot of pressure because of the war in ukraine um uh the sanctions against him suddenly uh china has a lot of leverage uh over russia uh even more than it had earlier and uh and 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 putin certainly is probably seeing that he's going to be a lot more dependent on beijing than he would have been in the past everything from resources sales sales of energy i mean you name it and who knows what the future may hold so at the same time if you're a planner in beijing and you cast your eyes back into europe you're also looking at in the in the in in the european capitals real uh 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 political turmoil uh today we know that uh the the italian government fell yesterday uh one of the most pragmatic and practical uh prime ministers is now going to leave the scene and a very uh, um um disturbing in some ways potential coalition could come to to uh to government in Rome in September when they have elections but look at London you know you've got uh, Boris Johnson has fallen we're going to have uh a potential uh unknown untested prime minister uh in September that could be that could win the hustings there uh in berlin uh and in paris uh two sitting governments uh, that have been weakened uh, over time and so if you're in beijing and you're looking at the political situation in western europe and you're looking at moscow 
you're, how are you feeling? I would think that um, you would be feeling pretty good about uh, uh, what kind of opportunities uh, could, could come to China uh, in such a situation. What, what would you all say? Noah, you're shaking your head up and down. What do you think? Um, well, I think we're in a very interesting period, uh, Jim. Uh, as Francesca mentioned, we've seen a lot of outreach from the Chinese side recently. Um, they've sent a number of envoys uh, on sort of weeks-long tours through uh, many, many different European countries. Uh, uh, Wang Yi, the foreign minister, is expected to visit in September. Uh, and, and we do have a sort of informal invitation to several European leaders uh, to visit Xi in Beijing before or after the G20 summit uh, in Indonesia in November. Um, so there are signs that China wants to re-engage with Europe after the party Congress uh, this autumn. Uh, and the outreach from Beijing is happening at a time when there, there are two, I think, other important factors at play. One, Europe, and you touched on this, Jim, is facing uh, major economic headwinds uh, because of the war in Ukraine. Right. Uh, and, and two, you know, I think rising concerns in Europe about the state of, of U.S. politics. Uh, President Biden looking very weak, his climate agenda in tatters, um, you know, some Supreme Court decisions, which, which have uh, many people in Europe uh, um, uh, shaking their heads. Uh, and reinforcing concerns about the direction of the country, partisan divisions, et cetera. We have the midterms looming. Um, so in, in, in Europe, people are starting to ask themselves what, what, what comes after Biden. And I think that will, that will probably accelerate after the midterms. Um, and all this plays into the, the relationship uh, with China. Uh, and it, it reinforces, I think, an inclination which exists in some European capitals uh, to hedge a, a bit. Um, now that said, um, uh, Europe is uh, is moving ahead with its defensive toolbox, which it's developed over a number of years. Uh, it's going to be proposing a forced labor ban. Uh, in, in we expect in September, the European Commission, foreign subsidies interest instrument, uh, international procurement instrument. So. So the, the technocrats in Brussels are, are, are moving right along, um, but I think it is a very interesting time because of you know, some of the political turbulence that we've seen in Europe. Um, we have a, a German coalition where, uh, which is also divided on China, a chancellor who doesn't wanna rock the boat, a foreign minister who wants uh, 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 to overhaul uh, the approach and, and, and support some more uh, a more hawkish, uh, I guess one would describe it as, as hawkish approach towards China. Uh, so there's a lot of questions in Europe. There's questions about uh, politics in the US. Uh, and once the, the uh, political uh, questions uh, are removed in, in Beijing, uh, once the, the party Congress is out of the way, I don't think one can exclude China sort of stepping up its outreach to Europe. Thank you. Francesca. Yeah, and I mean, sure, <laughs> nobody can deny that there's a lot of political turmoil in, uh, in Europe, difficult to deny. But what really surprised me is that um, yet we received these invitations slash non-invitation from Beijing for, you know, head of states to visit 
um, which sort of makes me wonder how much Beijing grasps what is actually happening in Europe. It's easy for us to have a full picture and say, look how complicated the situation is. Um, but do we know how well Beijing is able to assess the current situation? Um, and I mean, I was just joking on Twitter when I said, oh, look, you know, they're inviting Mario Draghi and then just, you know, five days later, the government fell. Um, but it's a bit, it's a little bit true. At the same time, they might not care which Italian prime minister goes and visit. But um, yeah, I'm not always sure that they grasp entirely what, what is happening. And um, just a very short comment about this defensive toolbox that is being adopted. And I don't want to be the pessimist in the room, but I'm afraid it'll have to be a little bit. They're adopting a lot of measures, true. What now I'm a little bit concerned about is uh, A, whether, you know, because of these issues that we have internally in European countries and in Europe, China is going to take a backseat. It has happened before and it may happen again. And the consequence this might have is that Brussels may not use these tools, not just because member states may block it in the cases where you have vote included, but also because, you know, I, I don't see Brussels ready to pay the political and economic cost of these toolbox quite yet. Um, I hope I'm wrong. I strongly hope I'm wrong. But in a scenario where we don't even have the United States pushing for the use of some of these measures, um, I'm a little bit afraid that we're going to not forget about them, but not use them as they're meant to. Noah, I'd love to pull a little bit more on this question about Germany's China policy. Um, we actually had a question submitted by one of our listeners about this. Um, they had also kind of identified this tension between the Federal Foreign Office on the Chancellery on a path forward. So um, they're asking you to pull out your crystal ball a little bit and predict kind of how do you see Germany's China policy developing? You know, what can we expect from the China strategy that will be released? you know, in the next months, you know, late 2022, early 2023? Yeah, that's a, that's a big, uh, a, a big question uh, right now, because I think Germany is absolutely crucial to uh, the development of a broader European China strategy. Germany has the closest economic relationship with China uh, by far. Um, it's uh, some of its biggest companies are deeply dependent on the Chinese market. Um, so we're seeing the beginning of a bit of a, 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 a dance going on in, in Berlin. Uh, the foreign minister, Annalena Baerbock, uh, said uh, just a few days ago in an interview, I think with Deutsche Welle, that she was very serious uh, about reducing uh, uh, Germany's economic dependence on China. Um, we've seen some of the, uh, the big uh, CEOs, uh, Herbert Dies, uh, who, who runs Volkswagen, uh, the company that is perhaps uh, sort of the poster child of, of uh, corporate dependence on China, um, come out in, in an interview a few weeks ago and, and criticized the government for the, the, the sort of the direction it was, it was taking China policy. Um, so this is this is all very very interesting. I think uh, positions uh, are uh, being sort of laid out, and in the end, we're we're going to see 
Uh, we're going to see what uh, what what comes out of it. Uh, it. It will be. I, I think what we're going to see is the foreign ministry uh, pushing uh, for a mu much more clear-eyed view, and 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 you know it is looking at uh, how to incentivize companies to diversify, how to disincentivize them uh, from investing, especially in uh, certain strategic uh, sectors that that would touch on national security. Um, but, you know, we have a chancellor who is extremely cautious. Um, and uh, I think we're going to see uh, by the end of the year, the plan is to produce a national security strategy. Uh, at some point early next year, we hope we will see uh, the China strategy come together. Uh, but it's unclear to me whether that will be a public strategy or uh, as we saw in the U.S. with the, the speech by uh, uh, Anthony Blinken uh, uh, a month or two ago, um, uh, a confidential strategy that is then uh, um, uh, where we see the main, the main sort of uh, guidelines of that uh, communicated in a speech or, or, or something like that. Um, but uh, no, I think a reckoning is looming in Germany uh, and in Europe over the course of, uh, of, of China policy. Francesca, do you have anything to add on the Germany front or honestly on the Italy front? I mean, I know everything is in such turmoil that it's difficult to say, you know, where that heads um, in the next year or so, but any big, bold predictions on Italy? And let me <laughs> add, if I may, Francesca, let me add to what Carissa just asked, you know, uh, Draghi was a very, um, you know, very important actor within the European Union uh, and uh, inspired a lot of confidence within the EU and the ECB among a lot of the pragmatic Europeanists. Uh, and so he was a he was a, a, a pretty big influencer in the EU. Now that he won't be in the EU, then, you know, I'm not sure what, what it'll look like in terms of the next Italian government, but what's the impact within the European Union, including developing a, a, a China strategy or EU relations with China? What's the impact of him not being there now? Uh, and uh, and uh, how, how might that manifest itself? Well, thank you for the very easy <laughs> questions. Um, so about the future, um, I don't know. Um, and the reason I don't know is not because I want to be cautious, but there's a tendency in Italy um, for polls to change radically um, near the elections. So if I had to look at the results now, what I would see is uh, definitely a um, right wing coalition. And I'm going to explain in a moment what would be the implications for a European China policy or generally speaking, Italy in Europe. But the Democratic Party, which is a centre-left party, is really close in terms of polls to the brothers of Italy, which is far right. And of course, the party who wins the elections gets to get uh, gets usually to um, create a government. So that is why I'm not sure what will happen in September 25th. Also, the elections are extremely close and we're going to have a campaign throughout summer. And I don't know how Americans are during summer, but Italians don't love to follow politics in August. They want to go to the seaside and, you know, think about some bathing, not really think about the next government. Now, what these are the implications. The first implication is definitely we no longer have a prime minister that is internationally recognized as, you know, having to stand 
that Draghi had, not only within Europe, but, you know, um, in the world. Uh, that is already a bit of a problem. And, and the second issue is, and here it becomes a little bit complicated, because in the past, having a populist coalition uh, led Italy to take a relatively close position, at least, you know, externally towards China. In 2019, Italy signed the Memorandum of Understanding to join the Belt and Road Initiative under a populist government. And that, at least um, from an, an external perspective, was quite a change of position compared to what happened before when we with the previous governments. Now, the interesting part comes when you look at the right component of the coalition, where the League and uh, Matteo Salvini began very enthusiastic about this relationship with uh, China, and then midway through, they stepped back and decided not to show up for the state visit, and they became very China-skeptic, and then they became China-friendly again, and then China-skeptic again. And what I'm saying is basically, why is it so difficult to predict? It's difficult to predict because they are so schizophrenic. The only certainty is that if they can, they will use China and or Russia as well to um, edge against the European Union. This is not; These are not pro-European parties. So um, this is perhaps... I'm sorry, I'm sort of the very cynical, negative person in, in this meeting. But yeah, this is this is what I have to say. No, no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that because we all need to, to know and understand that. In fact, the Washington Post did an editorial. I was surprised in their editorial page today saying this is no laughing matter what's happened in Rome. And I thought that was a very, very well done. But let me ask a quick follow up question. And Noah, please add to this as well. Uh, but uh, you know, in terms of the EU uh, and how the EU functions and how it's functioned over the past year and a half with Draghi in there, um, helping to lead a lot of the EU decision-making vis-a-vis Ukraine and uh, that type of thing. If he is not there as an actor, as a personality, you know, as a uh, leader within the European Union itself, I, th- I would think that would leave a big vacuum in terms of in terms of EU leadership, getting the EU going in a certain direction, et cetera, at a very crucial time, uh, as, as Noah has pointed out, economically, uh, you know, golly, uh, they're facing a tough time. And with Draghi not part of the decision-making process and leadership process within the EU and Brussels, I would think that that would, it's, would really, uh, I'm trying to think of a nautical uh, example, that would really take the rudder out, you know, uh, in a lot of ways in terms of the, your, the EU ship, in terms of where it was steering, maybe take down the mainmast, something like that. Um, Am I wrong on that or do you think it's going to really have an impact we're going to feel because the EU will not be able to uh, have the leadership or the unity that it had in the past? I think we are, and and, no, I'm just just very quickly, I think we are, but not just because of Draghi, it really depends who the next prime minister is going to be. And I I guess this is what also Noah is going to say, is also a combination of things, Um, you know, Macron being a bit of a difficult spot as well. Um, and, and Schultz not being, yeah. yeah. And Schultz not being, you know, the most uh, charismatic and proactive German leader <laughs> Germany has, has had. Um, 
But if we do have a populist government, then then it becomes a whole different um, issue. It's not just about not having somebody driving and helping driving. It's somebody dragging down and, you know, questioning decisions such as sanctions against Russia. We could go as far as that. Yeah. Noah? Yeah. I, I mean, it certainly doesn't make things easier. Uh, with Draghi uh, out of out of the picture, um, I mean, this is the man who who saved Europe uh, uh, back in 2012 with his uh, when he was president of the European Central Bank. Um, he's uh, ha- has a huge amount of credibility uh, and uh, is respected by his fellow uh, European leaders. Um, and Italy is uh, is a big country. Um, it's not uh, it, it's not Hungary. Um, so if you have a uh, a more populist uh, government in in Rome, uh, that has an impact. And we saw that with the uh, with the previous uh, government uh, that included uh, Lega and um, and and Five Star. Um, we saw China coming back to the China topic uh, uh, develop uh, a very close relationship with that government. Sign uh, uh, we saw that the Italian uh, that Italian government sign an MOU on the BRI, um, the first G7 country to do so. Uh, so it, it's it it, it, do, it certainly doesn't make things easier. And as Francesca said, Macron has been weakened. Um, by the legislative elections in France, he doesn't have a majority in the in, in the Assemblée Nationale, um, and uh, and and uh, you know Olaf Scholz um, uh, is is under a huge amount of, of pressure. Uh, he's his government has been sort of thrown in the fire. Um, uh, Germany is going to take uh, the brunt of the economic uh, uh, um, fallout from. The war in Ukraine because of its dependence on on Russian energy. Uh, so Schultz is not. Uh, I, I don't think anyone would, would describe him as a uh, uh, in a strong position uh, at the moment. Plus, we have cha- a change in the UK, um, and that will also be interesting, including on the China uh, uh, policy area. Right. Um, Liz Truss, uh, the, the the foreign minister, is one of the final two. Uh, she's very hawkish on China, um, and uh, and I think her her opponent Rishi Sunak is would probably mean a more pragmatic, uh, uh, sort of economically minded uh, approach. Um, uh, but if you have Liz Truss as uh, as um, uh, as prime minister in the UK. Uh, you know, she's going to be working lock, in lockstep with Washington, uh, and uh, together the U.S. and the U.K. will be putting pressure on on, on Europe to take a tougher stance. Um, there's a lot of uh, potential for uh, divisions and arguments. If you look at what's happening in Italy, look at what's happening in the U.K., uh, and, and you look at the the pressure that the German government is under at the moment. To pull the thread a little bit on this, what, where are Europe and the United States on these issues? You know, from your perspective, how much daylight is there between the U.S.'s stated policy, which you recently saw with Lincoln's big speech, as well as where Europe is headed? And then looking forward, what does that agenda look like? You know, where are the areas where we can cooperate? You know, you've rightly pointed out that Europe is taking action 
particularly on the economic coercion toolkits, you know, countering that, that the United States hasn't even taken. So kind of where, where are those, what, what is that low hanging fruit? What is the agenda look like for the US and Europe moving forward to counter challenges emanating from China? I think, uh, you know, we saw, um, I think Ukraine, the, the war in Ukraine has obviously pushed the US and, and, and Europe uh, closer together. Uh, I thought the Blinken speech uh, on China uh, was a speech that you could have, uh, you know, you, you could have heard from uh, any number of uh, top European uh, officials, uh, maybe not everything in there, but um, I, I think that the messages that Blinken uh, sent out were, were very much welcomed uh, in, in, in European capitals, certainly in Berlin, Brussels, Paris. Um, you know, I think here in Europe, the feeling is that that Washington has sort of moved towards uh, towards Europe on China with its uh, partner, competitor, systemic rival, Holy Trinity. We we hear from from Washington uh, a sort of similar similar noises, uh, similar similar rhetoric right now, but. You know, I talked earlier about uh, the, the weakness of the Biden administration, Biden himself, very unpopular. We have the midterms uh, uh, coming up. Uh, I, I think it's uh, extremely important for the U.S. and Europe to deliver uh, within the Trade and Technology Council, this, this transatlantic uh, forum that, uh, that they set up last year, and they've held two uh, high-level meetings. Um, I think another one is, is due in November. I think the first meeting in Pittsburgh sort of exceeded my expectations. The, the second meeting outside of Paris uh, fell short of my expectations. I think there are reasons for that. The, the bandwidth issue, everyone was dealing with Ukraine. Um, but there's a real need at the next summit to, to, uh, to really deliver on issues like semiconductors, uh, export controls. Uh, but I think the real big issue in the transatlantic relationship going forward will be, will be Taiwan. Um, I think we're at the beginning of a discussion within Europe uh, about Taiwan, but I, I think European capitals are very wary about uh, uh, steps that they feel might provoke uh, Beijing, so would would uh, uh, would be uh, disadvantageous. Um, there needs to be a, a robust uh, discussion, transatlantic discussion about this, uh, about Taiwan. It's about how you uh, how you deal with uh, with with Taiwan scenarios, uh, uh, you know, sanctions, etc against China. This is a discussion in places like Berlin, they just simply would rather uh, resist, uh, um, ra rather not have because the, 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 uh, the consequences are, are so, uh, so, uh, so big, uh, much bigger than, than, than Russia uh, and Ukraine. Um, so I, I do think with the, with the politics in the US getting messy, uh, again, the, the midterms uh, coming up, you know, it's really important this year for, for the U.S. and Europe to deliver on, on some, big, uh, some, some big issues that are not, are not, are not easy, uh, and that's why they haven't been solved until now, but they need to, to show some momentum. Francesca, over to you. Yeah, um, so I think there are quite 
first of all, there I think the UN China have made lots of progress in the last couple of years in terms of coordination and shared agenda. And now there's still quite a lot to do. And I'll first talk about <laughs> my sort of topic of expertise, which is economic security, and is something that is very uh, at the top of the agenda for the both of us. And as you said, Carissa, um, the European Union is working on an economic on anti-coercion uh, instrument, um, which the US doesn't have, but I'm sure there's interest in, uh, in Washington as well about, you know, what do we mean by economic coercion? How can we develop um, a measure that, you know, would respond to that? Can we think about something that is a little bit more international? So not just, you know, the US its own instrument, the US has its own instrument, et cetera, et cetera. The other point where the US is more ahead compared to the European Union is outbound foreign direct investments, how to screen and eventually block um, that and the European Union hasn't really quite started the debate on that one. But I think that on everyone's mind is supply chain diversification and resilience um, and how to um, decrease dependencies. And there is where, honestly, um, the European Union needs to be working with the United States as much as possible. Um, and it's going to remain quite topic. There will be differences about her, uh, how to go about it, but uh, that is definitely on top of the agenda. The other point is, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna label it as connectivity, but it's more maybe something like competition in third countries, and you know um, how to approach third countries. And uh, Africa is definitely an area where we could collaborate more. Um, if I'm not mistaken, there's going to be a US-Africa summit in December, right, if, if I remember correctly. And of course, there are many countries in the European Union that have um, quite um, a, a close interest in Africa, but also Asia. In Asia, of course, it's a little bit more complicated because not all European countries are as invested in the region as it is the case for Africa. But it's still, you know, we are all aware that it's going to be such an important region in the years to come, that connectivity and development definitely other areas where we can collaborate more. And of course, the, the initiative launched um, at the launched slash repackaged at the G7 um, was, uh, was definitely interesting. And on, uh, on Taiwan uh, is definitely going to be the thorniest of, of the issues, um, not just because most European countries see Taiwan as something very remote, uh, but also because most European countries don't have the military capacity to do anything um, about it. Military projection in, uh, in, in Asia is just not feasible for most Europeans. Um, and at the same time, um, yeah, and at the same time, um, I have a feeling that if, if it comes to it, it will be um, a coalition of the willing rather than being a, a European united response. Um, I wanted to conclude this comment in a little bit more positive note. So I'm going to say, however, there is a lot of very positive common agenda that, you know, is being developed. And if I may, I would just add something on Taiwan. We, we had, we saw an interview with the incoming uh, EU ambassador uh, to China, the outgoing Spanish ambassador uh, to Japan, uh, Jorge Toledo. Uh, in, I think, the Catalan press, uh, a Barcelona paper, which uh, was an interesting choice. Um, the 
also did this interview before he had, he had taken up his new role, uh, talking about China and Taiwan. Um, and, and, uh, and I think this, it's, it, the interview sort of underscored some of the, some of the, the problems that Europe has on Taiwan. He, he, in his interview, he came out in support of peaceful reunification. Uh, this is not really the EU stance. Uh, the EU says uh, any reunification must be peaceful, but it does not actively uh, back uh, reunification. And there were some other other odd quotes in that in that interview. Uh, he said uh, that political freedoms in China are not at their best, but they are also not at their worst. So perhaps he was talking about the Cultural Revolution, um, but a strange message at a time when when Xi Jinping has been cracking down on political freedoms for the past uh, decade. So uh, Europe is not all that to say that Europe is not. Uh, necessarily where it needs to be uh, on, on Taiwan. But I think that discussion is going to accelerate uh, also with a bit of a push from the U.S. over the next few months. To close us out, I'd be really interested in hearing from both of you. What is a big meeting, a big dynamic or trend coming up in the next couple of months that you think all of those transatlanticists who don't, you know, make Europe-China relations their day job should be focused on? Kind of what do you think could potentially shift the relationship in the next couple of months? You know, what are those big touch points that you're looking to? Noah, we'll start with you. Well, um, I mean, I think the, the big question is uh, the, uh, the party congress uh, in, in, in China, which we expect to happen. There's no fixed date, but I, I think the expectation is that happens sometime in October, perhaps, uh, November, possibly. Um, how is China, uh, Xi Jinping is expected to win a, a, a third uh, term. Uh, uh, what does, uh, and we're going to see a big changes in, in, in personnel. I mentioned earlier that uh, someone like Lu He, uh, 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 who's been sort of Xi Jinping's economic czar, uh, may no longer uh, uh, be around. Wang Yi, the foreign minister, I think there are questions about whether he will uh, remain in his post. Um, so that's going to be big. And, and, and how China is different after this party Congress and how Xi Jinping is different after this party Congress. I, I don't think it will be a great, uh, we'll see big differences, um, but, but that's certainly, uh, certainly something to watch. And I think, you know, European leaders have not met with Xi Jinping uh, in, in a few years because of the, uh, because of the uh, pandemic. Uh, there was an informal invitation to a number of European leaders to come. Uh, I am skeptical about whether uh, uh, they will want to show up for, for Xi Jinping's coronation to sort of kiss his ring. Uh, but uh, I think how uh, Europe engages with China and with Xi Jinping uh, at a time when maybe things are loosening up a little bit after the party Congress um, uh, is, is going to be very interesting to watch. Olaf Scholz, who's been in uh, power in Berlin uh, since December, uh, obviously has not, has not met with Xi Jinping yet. Uh, that might happen uh, at the G20 summit if Xi Jinping comes. I'm not sure whether he, he's planning to do that. But, but this is all, all going to be very interesting to see how this shakes out after the party congress. 
yeah, I second the one is definitely to look what happens on the side of the G20. The other one, and it's a little bit more complicated to keep track of, is to look whether indeed the comprehensive agreement on investments gets implemented without being ratified. So if some of these uh, provisions get uh, implemented in China, mostly. Um, the, the other one would be to keep an eye on uh, Central and Eastern European countries, because this is something we haven't necessarily talked about today. But following the invasion of Ukraine by Russia, there's been quite a strong positioning by Central and Eastern European countries, exception made for Hungary, um, on the China skeptic side of the European debate that become much more um, proactive in engaging with Taiwan as well. So keep an eye on that. And this leads me to my last uh, and uh, my next and last point, which is uh, see how the Czech presidency of the council develops, but most importantly, then how the Swedish presidency starting from January will, will happen. And mostly in regard to those all those instruments that we've just uh, mentioned a moment ago about anti-coercion, about, um, you know, economic security, geoeconomics, because Sweden has always been one of those countries that has pushed back against more um, control on the economy. Um, so I would say keep an eye on these things. Um, and uh, yeah. Excellent. Oh, Noah, jump on in. No, I was just crossing my fingers virtually. <laughs> <laughs> that it all works out. Yeah, I, think, I think we all are, honestly. Um, this is one of those rare occasions where we can end Brussels sprouts on a somewhat hopeful note. So thank you to both of you for joining us today. This was an incredible and wide-ranging conversation from shifts in European leadership to the trade and economic dialogue to consequences of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, and kind of those ripple effects on Europe-China relations. So we so appreciate you taking the time to speak with us and with our listeners on these recent developments. So thank you to both of you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank Thanks you. Thank down. you for having us. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts, brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts, and please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.